0: Thanks for your support on Patreon, Brian Frankian. Brian did his best to mediate between the two French plenipotentiaries at Westphalia, Claude Davo and Abel Servian, but mutual hostility soon made him wash his hands of the whole mission. Good effort though, Brian. This of course is all lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, all to episode 75 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for joining me, and if this is your very first time listening, then oh boy, you've got quite a back catalogue to catch up on. In the last episode, we provided something of a crash course of an introduction to that peace process at Westphalia, as the different states assembled at the cities of Osnabrück and Munster, and those two towns did their best to accommodate them. In this episode, we're going to spend some time examining each party and what they hoped to gain from the peace process, taking our lead from the beginning of 1645, before the military sphere made matters clearer cut. That's all we really need as far as introductions go, so without any further ado, let's get into this diplomatic nerdiness as I take you to Westphalia. By 1645, the negotiations at Osnabrück and Munster had technically been ongoing for two years. In practice, though, 1645 and even 1646 were the years when this conference truly began for many. Much had also changed since this town had opened its gates to the hosts of deputations and dignitaries. In Osnabrück, the Danish mediators had been comprehensively removed after the defeat of Denmark and Christian the Fort's kingdom in the Torstensen War, Munster, where the Dutch Spanish Franco Spanish, and Franco Imperial treaties were negotiated, contained two mediators by contrast: the Venetians and the Papacy, and contained additional petitioners such as the Portuguese. The Treaty of Hamburg of 1641 had separated the conference into these two towns, and on the surface, the decision had been taken owing to the refusal of the papacy to deal fairly with the Protestant powers. Since 1641, profoundly optimistic predictions about when the powers would assemble were made, with March 1642 originally set as the beginning of the conference, before July 1643 was substituted instead. As I said, though, not till 1645 with their Danish enemy removed could the Swedes feel comfortable beginning the negotiations while the Dutch didn't arrive in Munster until spring 1646. While the Westphalian peace negotiations did not seem to begin or even end at a strict point, one has an easier task measuring exactly what each of the powers wanted to achieve in their time there. Let's begin with France, with Cardinal Mazarin running the government and the boy king Louis XIV, who probably wouldn't amount to much, in the early phases of a reign that would take France somewhere or another. In 1645, though, few could have imagined how high Louis XIV would rise, and yes, I'm joking, of course, he became the Sun King, and we've covered him in many of our earlier episodes, so do check out that if you want the unofficial sequel to all of this but Mazarin was determined to provide as beneficial a platform as possible for the young king by succeeding at Munster. Tasked with this mission were two very different but very experienced French diplomats, Abel Servian and Claude Davaud. They had both been in our story before, and they both had experience in diplomacy and statesmanship. Abel Servian had been a former secretary for war, and Claude Davo had been prevalent in recent treaties, such as that truce brokered between Sweden and Poland in 1635. Unfortunately, though, despite their many plaudits and impressive track records, these two hard-working Frenchmen could not stand one another, and they were also polar opposite personalities. Abel Servian was impersonable and irritable, Claude davo was friendly and engaging, but both seemed to combine the best aspects of Cardinal Mazarin's personality because they pursued a ruthlessly self-interested policy, while remaining on good terms with most of their counterparts. In fact, the two men couldn't even get as far as Munster without falling out, thanks to an ill-advised speech which Davo made in The Hague, where the Frenchman had advocated for Dutch Catholics and claimed to have able Servian's support in this. Servian angrily disputed this assertion, and by the time the two men had reached Munster, they were publishing pamphlets attacking one another, as if they didn't have enough to do already. Rather than recall either man, Mazarin sent a third figure, the Duke of Longueville, to lead the French delegation and balance them out. Longueville descended from an illegitimate son of Henry IV and imagined himself as an influential French statesman of some repute, but he lacked the skill of his subordinates and he only had a minimal impact on the negotiations. We should remind ourselves that France's position at Westphalia was unique. France was the only power that was at war with both branches of the Habsburgs, the Austrian and Spanish branches that is, although the war with the Emperor had never been made official. This meant that not only had France several military fronts to worry about in Catalonia, Italy, Flanders and the Rhine, to name the main ones, she also had several goals related to these theatres. Naturally, Mazarin prioritised his goals. He was willing enough to bargain away Catalonia, he was eager to receive lordship over Alsace, and thanks to the preponderance of French forces in the region and Dutch assistance, he expected for France to take additional portions of Flanders. For this reason, Mazarin worked to confound Maximilian of Bavaria and gather as much intelligence about the latter's military plans as possible, with varying degrees of success. Mazarin believed if Bavaria could be separated from the Holy Roman Emperor, either by military force or through a diplomatic arrangement, the Imperials would be severely restricted One of the guiding principles of Mazarin's regime was the Swedish alliance. Because the war against Spain was the main event, it was essential that Sweden, and therefore Axel Oxenstierna, the Swedish Chancellor, remained closely connected to France. Oxenstierna also adhered to this logic. The more distracted the Spanish were in their war with France, the less able they'd be to support the Emperor. For his part, Oxenstierna helped Sweden's case. He made separate peace agreements with the Protestant electors before the guts of the negotiations at Osnabrück had even begun. Peace was made with Brandenburg in 1644 and with Saxony in 1646. Oxenstierna was well connected to the negotiations in Osnabrück thanks to the appointment of his son Johan as one of the two plenipotentiaries here. We've already seen how the senior Oxenstierna refused to allow his grieving son to return home after the death of his wife, but notwithstanding this tough love, Johan and Axel forged a useful line of communication. Axel's family standing meant that the younger Oxenstierna was head of the embassy and outranked Johan Salvius, the other Swedish plenipotentiary. Other anecdotes testify to Johan Oxenstierna's inflated sense of self-importance, Like his hilarious insistence of having trumpets blare whenever he sat down to eat or whenever he retired to bed. You should know this was by no means unusual, as Johann Oxenstierna's contemporaries had long made use of trumpets during diplomacy, and the subject itself is pretty fascinating and really makes me laugh. But still, all of this trumpeteering can't have endeared him to his colleague or to those around him. Sweden's position had been greatly improved in the aftermath of the Torstenson War, which was brought to an end in August 1645. This not only removed Denmark as a mediator in Osnabrück, as we said, it also removed any opportunity that the Emperor might have had to distract Swedish attentions. With its old rival defeated and valuable tracts of land seized, Torstenson planned to focus his full attentions on the Emperor and events in the military sphere demonstrated from 1645 would show Sweden had finally recovered from the devastating aftermath of the defeat at Nordlingen a decade before. This recovery was fortunate, but neither Torstensen nor Oxenstierna were so naive as to take it for granted. Nordlingen had taught Sweden a fierce lesson about the shifting nature of the war. What was to stop another Nordlingen once more ruining Swedish options? Shortly after the great Swedish triumph in the Battle of Yankov in March 1645, which we'll cover shortly, news of the victory reached Westphalia, and the Frenchman Abel Servian reflected on the event, noting that Torstenson is now the master of the campaign, but it is necessary to reflect on what would have become of him had he been defeated in Bohemia. Being so far from any secure retreat, our situation would be as bad as the Emperor's is, which goes to show that very little is required to change the state of affairs. This was an astute observation, but just as important to Oxenstierna as the continuing supremacy of Torstensen was the guarantee of Swedish territorial gains, above all, in Pomerania. The aforementioned treaty with Brandenburg in June 1644 had guaranteed Brandenburg's neutrality and the payment of a large subsidy, but the Swedish possession of Pomerania remained out of Oxenstierna's grasp, and the wily elector Frederick William would later manage to come into new territory, such as Mecklenburg, in return for that settlement. Since confirmation on Pomerania's status was not forthcoming, it seemed no one could decide whether Sweden should have half of or all of Pomerania, just as Sweden's policy towards Protestants was similarly up in the air. Axel and Johann Oxenstierna tended to push harder for greater religious concessions to Protestants and greater territorial demands. While Johann Salvius, who was in touch with Queen Christina of Sweden since she had come to her majority in late 1644, opted instead for more moderate terms. The battlefield would improve the negotiating position of the French and the Swedes, but both cooperated in the meantime to issue an interesting demand to the Emperor in early 1645, that demand being that the imperial estates should be allowed to attend. On some level, this demand made sense. After all, it had proved impossible to prevent representatives of the imperial estates from flocking into the Westphalian towns since the negotiations began. According to the terms of the 1641 Treaty of Hamburg that had separated the negotiations into the two cities in the first place, the French and Swedes were entitled to invite their allies to attend, and they could both argue several of their allies were among these estates. But... Did all estates, ranging from the small territory to representatives of the free cities, to imperial knights to the larger electors, all have to attend? Traditionally, this wide attendance was only called for during an imperial diet, where every participant knew the pecking order and literally knew where they stood in the room. In the case of a peace conference involving powers outside the empire, though, it was less clear what was to be done. Furthermore, France and Sweden disagreed over the extent of the estates' representation. Would the arrival of too many estates dilute the impact of others and effectively paralyze negotiations through sheer numbers alone? In April, the emperor answered the question for them, at least partially, by ordering the deputation diet in Frankfurt to reconvene at Münster. This diet had been in session for nearly two years, and it had served as the location for Catholic estates allied to the emperor to discuss matters of imperial justice. That at least had been the intention, but these estates had spent much of the past two years debating over how to end the war, and by inviting them to Munster, the emperor demonstrated that he was, perhaps at last, willing to listen. But to the Swedes and French, this wasn't good enough. For one, the reconvened Deputation Diet would contain virtually no Protestants and no rebels, like Castle at all. It was also minimalist in its representation. There would be no imperial free cities or knights represented. Sweden objected to the Deputation Diet moving to Munster as well. This made Osnabrück appear less important, while both powers disputed the Emperor's decision to take religious matters out of that diet's hands by convening a separate diet tasked solely with solving the religious question, the issue of representation for the estates had degenerated into something of a mess as sixteen forty five progressed But by the eleventh of June, the two crowns had developed their proposals and in the process, crossed a significant line of the negotiations. The issue of the estates would drag on the negotiations for another six months, and it wasn't until early sixteen forty six that Westphalia began to host some truly meaningful negotiations. France had made some specific demands, like placing a ban on electing an emperor's successor in the current emperor's lifetime. This cynical act was designed to break the grip on the imperial office, which the Habsburgs maintained, and if you know your history, you'll know that this didn't work. Sweden focused on the religious issue, which the French seemed unwilling to touch with a barge pole, because it would alienate potential allies in the Catholic camp, like Bavaria, if the religious settlement in the empire was turned back to 1618, like Sweden insisted. On questions of amnesty and satisfaction, neither the solution nor the methods were particularly clear, but the French and Swedes at least had a base from which they could negotiate from, and both had made a point of presenting these proposals on the same day in each town, so as to maintain the appearance, at least, of a strong united alliance. For the moment, Ferdinand appeared unwilling to approve any widespread attendance by all estates of the empire. He only consulted the deputation Diet regarding these demands, even as Munster was beginning to fill up with representatives from the smallest loyal imperial enclave to the more rebellious German state. This added an additional urgency to the debate, and over the summer several solutions were proposed, with the gathered estates effectively dividing themselves between the two towns. In practice, the division of these estates nullified what little influence they might have had, and larger powers like electors tended to dominate, while the views of the smaller entities were passed to the emperor as protests. Ferdinand determined to resist the pull no longer, and on the twenty-ninth of August 1645, the emperor relented and granted voting privileges to the estates, inviting them all to attend. This imperial estates saga was by no means over, but the emperor had apparently come to the conclusion that it was better to accommodate the estates now than to resist. It would still have been impossible for the multitude of micro-states to overwhelm the stance of the larger electors, but these smaller voices would at least now be heard. As the emperor himself wrote, You will be aware what was recently discussed and agreed between us and the electors and estates of the empire. We have followed this agreed imperial decision at all times and all and every elector and state of the Empire can send their representatives to said peace talks to join and assist our imperial envoys with advice and thereby exercise their free rights of suffrage, freely confessed and unhindered by us. Our imperial envoys have already proposed proper peace terms at Munster and Osnabrück to the plenipotentiaries of both crowns, France and Sweden, who have also revealed their propositions on the 11th of June, and we have now given these propositions mature discussion and consideration, and thereby found that they are of notable concern to the electors and estates of the Empire. We, however, do not want to detract from their current and customary rights and justice in the slightest, and are resolved once and for all, and have instructed our envoys accordingly, that they should discuss with the electors and estates' representatives, councillors and ambassadors, and then respond to the plenipotentiaries of both crowns. Therefore, we have wanted to explain matters to you and wish, with your gracious request, that you, if you have not already done so, either send your envoy to the said negotiations with sufficient instructions and powers, or entrust another of the imperial estates with such powers, and instruct them to appear at the peace negotiations, and on their arrival there to assemble and continue with the others in the three imperial curia, as is customary in the Holy Roman Empire, as well as to assist our imperial envoys with true word and deed, because we do not want to delay promoting the said peace negotiations, and, with God's help, bring them to the desired conclusion as far as the foreign crowns will be content with honorable, proper, and Christian means. Ryan Reynolds here for Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How you get 30, 30, bet you get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? so Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Interestingly, the more representative Republican power at the peace negotiations, the Dutch Republic, showed scant interest in this imperial estates debate, largely because the Dutch negotiators were focused on Spain and were at pains to emphasise that their quarrel was not with the emperor. These Dutch representatives made their base in Munster, supposedly under the watchful eye of their French ally, but in practice often pretty far from them. Although eager to proclaim their disinterest in all matters relating to representative institutions in the empire, the very form of the Dutch diplomatic mission to Munster told its own distinctive story about representative government and of the sometimes fractious nature of Dutch domestic politics. This was clearly evident in the fact that each of the seven provinces which constituted the Dutch Republic were permitted to send their own representatives, with Holland sending two owing to its larger size. In practice, of course, Holland and Zealand as the two more powerful, influential provinces of the Republic led the Dutch delegation and its agents proved the most important. Let's throw some more names at you, as if you didn't have enough already. The primary delegate from Holland was Adrian Pauw a lawyer and former Grand Pensionary, in other words, former Prime Minister of Holland. Zeeland had sent Johann de Knight a good friend of Frederick Henry. Traditionally, since Holland tended to bear most of the burden of cost for maintaining the army, its officials advocated reducing it, and had already done so by 1644. But this decision from Holland tended to rub Zealand the wrong way because the second-largest province, interestingly, wanted the war to continue and also tended to support the military commanders of the House of Orange most enthusiastically for this reason. By 1645, both provinces, Holland and Zealand, were animated by the pursuit of two main goals which the peace process could be expected to protect. One, the obvious one, a successful conclusion to the war with Spain and the preservation of ...of the Dutch colonial empire as second, which had exploded in size across the world since the turn of the century. With scant power and at small burden to the community by means of the contributions of a small number of the inhabitants of this state... ...the operations of the West India Company have been carried out so successfully that the pride of Spain has not been able to withstand them... And it has plainly appeared, therefrom, in what ways this mighty sovereign may be damaged through his own resources, and the American treasures, with which he has these many years plagued and kept in lasting unrest the whole of Christendom, be snatched from him or rendered useless. This optimistic account given by a director of the West India Company in 1644 encapsulates this joint Dutch struggle against Spanish power abroad and closer to home. In 1630, a force of 65 ships, nearly 4,000 sailors and three and a half soldiers, had landed in Olinda, Pernambuco, and ever since that date, the Dutch had effectively made themselves at home in modern-day Brazil. Pressure had mounted upon the Spanish to act in the name of their Portuguese client, but instead of removing the Dutch from the region, the investment from the rebels multiplied. From the late 1630s, when the Dutch managed to harness the sugar plantations and co-opt the support of the loyalist Portuguese population, healthy returns began to flow back to The Hague. The Portuguese revolt in 1640 complicated the picture, but as the above quote explains, there was little reason to suppose that after a generation of trying, the Spanish or Portuguese would be able to remove the Dutch now. But this hubris was to prove fatal. As the West India Company sought to reduce its costs and alleviate some of its debts, the decision was made to recall the Dutch governor of the region, John Maurice, who sailed out of the lucrative colony just in time for the whole place to degenerate into rebellion. Energised, perhaps, by the Declaration of Independence, Loyalist Portuguese settlers overwhelmed the limited Dutch garrison, and by the end of 1645, The Dutch presence was reduced to the Rakeef, which was a spit of marshy land where the Dutch presence had originally been established 15 years before. In the course of this retreat, the Portuguese settlers routed the Dutch in repeated skirmishes, one in particular at Tabacus, a short distance from the Rakeef refuge. In the context of the wider war, the historian Geoffrey Parker provides us with this, saying, This minor engagement, the Battle of Tabacus, fought 6,000 miles from the Netherlands and involving under 1,000 men on each side was one of the most important actions of the Eighty Years' War. It destroyed Dutch power in Brazil. Only four toeholds on the coast, Rakeef, the chief among them, remained. The great profits from the sugar trade were gone. The West India Company, based on Zealand, was therefore desperate to recover its lost empire and looked urgently at the means available. Could the Brazilian colony be saved for the Dutch? Not so, according to the efforts of several relief fleets sent in 1646 and 47. The only means to rescue the situation seemed to lie in a comprehensive defeat of Portugal, which was impossible as long as the Dutch and Spanish were at war. Perhaps, some Dutch officials imagined, the Portuguese would be less able to support their Brazilian appendages once they were forced to take on Spain alone. But peace with Spain presented its own challenges, like reduced incomes for the West and East India companies that they gained from attacking Spanish shipping, and fewer opportunities elsewhere to encroach on Spain's colonial holdings. Hard bargaining thus took place between representatives of Holland, who were eager to end the war with Spain, and Zealand, who were eager to reconquer Brazil for the West India Company. By 1645, it was at least impossible to hide the fact that the war wasn't going well for Spain. It is indispensable to make peace, proclaimed the Count of Penaranda, the Spanish ambassador at Munster, adding with some urgency that... If I had to give instructions to a new ambassador, I would tell him to make a good peace, or a mediocre peace, or a bad peace, but to make peace, because there is no more time to delay, having arrived, as I believe, at the point where... We no longer have any means of making war. Such a gloomy outlook seeped into the mood of the often irritable, often unwell Spanish ambassador, Penaranda. The Count of Penaranda had never been outside of Spain when he had been appointed as Spain's main representative at Munster. His orders were essentially to give away whatever the Dutch asked for, but to do his best to preserve some semblance, whatever it was, of... King Philip IV's prestige. Spain's position in 1645 was, of course, a far cry from that of 1619, when King Philip IV's father had ordered his soldiers into the Palatinate in support of Ferdinand III's father. Indeed, it was a far cry even from the Spanish position of 1634, when the Cardinal Infant had brought Spain's military contribution into Germany and destroyed a Swedish army at Nordlingen but these triumphs and that activism now seemed a distant memory. A gradual decline punctuated by a series of defeats and recently revolutions had been the Spanish story since the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. Neither Penaranda nor his peers in Madrid expected this to markedly change, but they did hope some beneficial arrangement might be squeezed out of the situation at Westphalia, perhaps by separating the Dutch and French from each other or pursuing the war with one or the other. Whatever naive predictions might be made about the prospects of war with one of these powers, the prospects were infinitely better than those which plagued Spain currently. The spanish Netherlands regime was being kept together only by Leopold William, who was Ferdinand III's brother. But what truly preserved it was the lacklustre Dutch contributions since the fall of Breda in 1637. Evidently, with the fear of reconquest by Spain utterly banished, it was becoming difficult for the Dutch to muster enthusiasm to pursue the war any further. It was also suspected within The Hague that any further battering upon the defences of Flanders could only be to the benefit of the French, who continued to seize new towns in that region every year. France, enlarged by possession of the Spanish Netherlands, will be a dangerous neighbour for our country commented the Assembly in Holland. To avoid a border with the resurgent realm of Louis XIV and preserve a buffer between the nominal allies, Dutch strategists and officials argued that the advance should go no further. Now, this idea was hotly disputed, but as we've seen, the unconvinced could be coerced into cooperating by promising to make contributions elsewhere, where the Zeelanders were persuaded to make peace with Spain in return for a Brazilian relief force paid for by Holland. Because Holland shouldered the burden of the war with Spain, more than 50%, so it was said, her officials were obviously most eager to end it. Many merchants and regents in the Republic had also become suspicious of the Prince of Orange's intentions, especially since Frederick Henry's marriage into the House of Stuart was confirmed. Was this scion of the House of Orange preparing himself to create a new monarchy at The Hague? Hardly. At over 60 years old and in poor health. Frederick Henry mustered enough energy for one final campaign in 1645. The capture of Hulst, a town just to the south of Zealand. Hulst had frustrated Frederick Henry before in 1640, but thanks to the aid of the French, two and a half thousand Spanish were compelled to surrender in early November. The fall of Hulst marked a significant watershed moment in the history of the Dutch-Spanish War. This siege was destined to be Not merely Frederick Henry's final campaign, but the final actual campaign of the 80-year conflict between the Dutch and Spanish. A glance at the map of the Netherlands today illustrates the strategic importance of Hulst. It was bordered to the south by Flanders, but it was otherwise surrounded by the sea. It thus resembled a kind of toehold in Flanders, and it enabled the Dutch to maintain control over the River Scheldt, which flowed into the sea to the north-east. This final gasp of the Dutch military machine, which had proved so effective in the hands of the House of Orange, underlined in Madrid that uncomfortable fact that the continuation of the war simply meant additional losses. There was to be no opportunities, even with the Dutch colonial troubles, the relative division of the supposedly united provinces, and the war weariness for the Spanish to launch any resurgent campaigns or to take advantage of. The army of Flanders, which had itself sucked in countless reserves of Spanish silver and manpower, seemed to be spluttering and stumbling towards its ignoble end by the mid-1640s, after years of chronic underinvestment and bitter defeats. Somewhat ironically, wrote the historian Jan Gleet, The rebellious Dutch made Habsburg Spain more militarily powerful in northern Europe than the monarchy would have been if these provinces had remained loyal but unwilling to support major military efforts. This military power had been used to great effect in the second half of the 16th century and in the initial years of the Thirty Years' War. However, by 1645 this irony was surely lost on the depleted Spanish and as the war with the Dutch drew near to a close, What exactly did Madrid have to show for the 80 years of struggle save an exhausted heartland, a broken treasury system and a shattered military reputation which had once been the terror of Europe? All Spain had now was the prospect of peace. But to see the sufferings of so many poor innocent people in these wars and conflicts lamented the Spanish king pierces me to the very heart and if with my life's blood I could remedy it I would expend it most willingly. Dutch independence was effectively secure, and as soon as the Spanish overcame their inbuilt stubbornness, it was expected peace would at last be at hand between the two old enemies. It would certainly be more straightforward to reach peace with the Dutch, because the Dutch were at least recognised as plenipotentiaries, with Spain's Iberian neighbours up in revolt, Both Catalonia and Portugal could be expected to send independent representatives of their own with varying degrees of success. Portugal maintained a representative at Munster and Osnabrück and these agents worked very hard for the five years that the towns were open for business though the recent experiences of Portuguese diplomats hadn't exactly boded well. A Portuguese delegate in Rome had been attacked in broad daylight. The Portuguese king's brother languished in a Spanish prison, and King John himself of Portugal was the victim of an assassination attempt in 1647. All the while, Portuguese representatives kept their eyes on the prize, that of including Portugal in whatever peace treaty might be signed between the Bourbons and Habsburgs, and legitimising Portuguese sovereignty in the process. When we consider the exhaustion of the Habsburg and Bourbon parties, It is remarkable that the Spanish war with France dragged on until 1659, or that Portugal's wars with the Dutch and Spanish continued until 1663 and 1668, respectively. A key element in this mess, or intrigue, was a Spanish hope, seemingly against hope, that Cardinal Mazarin's grasping financial policies would eventually provoke a revolt against his authority from the French people. For a time, this hope appeared desperately forlorn, and only Spanish dependencies in Naples and Sicily flocked to the standard of revolt. From 1648, though, a tear in the fabric of French society known as the Fronde did occur, and for the next four years, this revolt grew like a snowball rolling down the hill until it included in its ranks disgruntled nobles, former commanders, and even princes of the blood. Whether cardinal mazarin knew to expect the coming storm or not, he did recognise that separating the two Habsburg branches through war or peace was essential. In this task, the mission of France settling with the Holy Roman Emperor appeared by far the most attainable. We're going to examine those French imperial negotiations in the next episode, history friends, but for now, I think I've dropped enough detail and names upon you. I hope you enjoyed this cursory look at the early portion of Westphalia, because there's plenty more to come. You should know that if you would like 60 hours of extra content, and that number is growing all the time, then you should sign up to Patreon. For just a fiver a month, you could be chowing down on all these extra goodies, And trust me, there's some great stuff in there. Everything from Poland is not yet lost to the Suez Crisis of 1956 to a new series we're doing looking at diplomacy between Britain and America in the 1830s and 40s. That's my pitch, that's my plug. Thanks so much for listening and supporting the show. My name is Zach, soon to be Dr. Zach, and I'll be seeing you all... soon.